we're talking about uh, Luke as a series that we're going through here at OCC over the next year. And uh, I've got the privilege of speaking to you about new wine and new wineskins, which is a fantastic passage. Um, to be honest, they're all fantastic passages. I'm not going to get into which one's better than another, but I'm really pleased to be talking about this. Now, Luke's a really careful author, and he's really careful as to how he groups his subject material. He hasn't just gone, oh, here's a load of stories. I think this is roughly the order they happened in. And actually, there's a lot of care and attention put into how they're put together. So we're just going to read through this passage. And there's three different stories that come out, or three different events, with several sort of uh, discussions that go on. But there's a number of common themes that come out. And I just want to read through the passage as a whole to start with, so that we can start to appreciate what's going on here. So After this, which is after Jesus has just raised the paralytic man who was lowered through the roof. So this is uh, Jesus has been questioned about his authority to forgive sins. After that, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to that sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So then they said to him, Well, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. In those days they will fast. And he told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise they will have torn the new garment, and the patch won't match the old anyway. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for they say, the old is better. So that's discussion that takes place at Levi's banquet. It goes on one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields. And his disciples began to pick ears of corn, rub them in their hands, and eat the grain. And some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did? When he and his companions were hungry, he entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So, on another Sabbath, he went into a synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with his shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, what is it lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or destroy it? He looked round at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and the hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Three stories. There's 
uh, the banquet with the sinners that Levi throws on. There's walking through the cornfield and snacking on the Sabbath. And then there's this healing on the Sabbath. And three questions directed at Jesus as a result. Now, in, this, um, in the passage, it actually says that the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples. And that was maybe just a bit of a roundabout way of them getting at Jesus because they didn't really want the confrontation of you know, asking him. But ultimately, if a rabbi at that time failed to correct his disciples in doing something wrong, then he was seen as being guilty. So what they were really saying is, this accusation's at you, but we'll throw it at the disciples and then it's, it's easier, it's kind of more indirect. If you read the account in Matthew, Matthew is um, within the Jewish tradition and he sort of sees this and actually just says, the Pharisees spoke to Jesus because he clearly sees what's going on. These accusations are challenges to Jesus. Why do you eat with sinners? Why don't you fast? Why do you break the Sabbath? Now, a number of the commentators who look at these passages actually compare the Pharisees at this point to sort of paparazzi journalists. They are following Jesus, watching his every move, trying to find fault, trying to find something that they can put their finger on and say, we discount you because you are doing this. To be following him through the cornfield, watching his disciples to see if they eat. You know, it's, it just represents a, a dedication to trying to show that Jesus is to be discounted. But it's also worth pointing out that even the accusations they do bring are based on their own interpretations. So there were strict rules about the Sabbath. I think we know that from the Old Testament. They lived under this law which said that you shouldn't work on the Sabbath, shouldn't do any work on the Sabbath. But around that law, the Jews had built up this kind of law on law to try and stop themselves from ever straying over the boundary. They put this another boundary around it. And there were various traditions saying what you could or couldn't do. In fact, I was looking into this and one of the key traditions at the time said that apart from actually preparing your meal on the Sabbath, you shouldn't move food more than a lamb's mouthful. Now, I don't know, does anybody here actually farmer? Do we have anyone here who's worked in agriculture? Anyone have any idea at all how big a lamb's mouthful of grain might be? I was thinking about this. I, was, I think it's probably about a handful, I guess, but it depends how big the lamb is, doesn't it? But so they had this tradition, and I'm sure it meant a lot more to them, about how much you could or couldn't do. But what the Pharisees are accusing Jesus' disciples of actually doing is threshing. Now, threshing is when you get a big sledge and you kind of drag it across the grain to get the husks off it. And they're doing this with their hands. And the Pharisees are saying, oh, you're threshing grain. That's breaking the Sabbath. So it's, it's important to realize that not only are they fault-finding for Jesus, but they're also really basing it on their own interpretations and their accusations would not have been objectively valid. There might have been some rabbis who would have agreed with them at the time, but there's not a clear objective. Jesus was actually breaking the law. But ultimately, the Pharisees aren't really after the truth. And Jesus calls them out on this a little bit later on in Luke 7. So they're sort of, they're, they're objecting to Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, but they're not really interested in whether or not that's right or wrong. They're interested in discrediting Jesus. What he says to them is, listen, you guys, you can't be pleased. You're like children playing a game in the square. They complain to their friends, we played wedding songs and you didn't dance. We played funeral songs and you didn't weep. Because John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating bread or drinking wine. And you say, he's possessed by a demon. The son of man comes feasting and drinking and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. So it's clear that the Pharisees really are after a reason to discount Jesus. They're not interested in the truth. 
They're interested in taking their existing prejudice and justifying it. But Jesus answers them. And Jesus is always fantastic at seeing the question underneath the question, isn't he? And so often he doesn't really answer the exact question that's put to him. He answers what he knows is going on in their hearts. So, yeah, there we have the the threshing of the grain, just as a reminder. Jesus' first answer is, I know my mission. I'm a doctor to the sick. And this is really important because we get the same sort of questions thrown at us as Christians sometimes, don't we? We get the question of, you know, aren't you just all on some hidden agenda? You know, you want to just have more and more people in your club. You want to have more and more people in your church. And it's all about kind of collecting people to justify your faith, justify your belief in what you think is right. And it's important that if that kind of challenge comes, that we know what our mission is. Our mission is to bring Jesus the doctor to the sick. Jesus knows that, and he's very clear about it. As a result, he's able to say, all these questions you're bringing, they're not valid because I know my mission, and it's the call of God. It's not just that he knows its mission, it's also that his heart is right. It's hard to get a good picture of your heart being right. That's the best I could come up with. It's um, obviously the the organ heart rather than the the shape. But his heart is right. So at the banquet in the Matthew passage, which runs parallel to this one in Luke, Jesus goes on after the comments about the doctors and the sick. And he says, go and learn the meaning of this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And what he's referring to there is a passage from the prophet Hosea who was calling the people of his time out on the fact that they were following the letter of the law, but their hearts were far from him. He was saying, look, I'd much rather have your hearts and not have the perfection of the law than to have you following rigid laws and your hearts far from me. Jesus knows that his heart is right. And there's a call again for us, I guess, to know that our hearts are right, to constantly come to God for that cleansing of conscience. You know, God, I don't want anything else to creep into the mission that you've called us to. I want it to be a dedication to you. But Jesus also points out that he isn't the only person who testifies about himself. In fact, he explicitly says that at various points. He says, you know, if I testify about myself, that's not valid. But actually, there is another one who testifies for me. And you see this in the passage where he heals on the Sabbath. He totally stitches up the Pharisees. Because he actually doesn't really do anything. There's a man there with a withered hand, shriveled hand, I suppose, you know, probably looking like that, something like that. And Jesus doesn't walk over to him. He doesn't touch him. He doesn't really say very much to him. He asks the question to the Pharisees, then he says, stand up, and then he says, stretch out your hand. Now, in all of that, there's no work involved. He's not even laid a hand on somebody. He's not even spoken a word of healing. He's just said, stretch out your hand. And what's clear in all of that is that it's got to be from God. It's driven from God from the start. It's not something that he's doing against the law. He's saying, no, look, this is what God wants. And there's a mandate from God to do it. We know the passages, I'm sure, where you know, Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. His constant uh, drive in life is to please his Father in heaven. And he only does what will please his father in heaven. But then he tells these two parables, and that's where I want to really focus today. So there's these two, they're short parables, mini parables. There's not much of a story to them. Um, Perhaps the kind of story that you might have to read about in a boring literature class or something. But 
the, the message of them is really powerful. So the first one is the patch, the new patch on the old garment. And just like you to imagine that um, you've got an old pair of trousers. I've got a whole bunch of tra- trousers that at some point I'm supposed to be fixing. Um, I keep thinking maybe Caroline will do it for me because she can actually sew. But um, you've got an old pa- pair of trousers and they're maybe ripped at the knees or they've got sort of a patch out, taken out, a chunk taken out of them at the pocket or something like that. And at Christmas time, somebody comes and gives you a fantastic new pair of trousers and says, hey, you'd have to wear those old ones anymore. Look, here we go. And you say, that's great, thanks. Let me just get my scissors. And you chop a little patch out of the new, fancy new trousers and patch it on the old one. And it's just, it's ludicrous, isn't it? It's, it you would not do that. And Luke makes the point, you know, why would you do it? You'd have completely wrecked the old one, or the new one. And it wouldn't match anyway. What he's really saying is that it would be totally inappropriate to take what Jesus has brought, this new thing that Jesus has brought, this better thing that Jesus has brought, and try to kind of cut out bits of it and fix up the old way of working. You see, the Pharisees were all about trying to, trying to make the law work better. They'd seen the decline of their nation. They'd seen them go into captivity. They'd seen things go wrong. And, you know, it had been going wrong for hundreds of years by that stage. Their nation had been in decline. And the temple, you know, had been destroyed, rebuilt smaller. Then there'd been conquests that had been shrunk, shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And they were currently living under oppression. And their solution to that was, we just need to try harder. We just need to do it a bit better. And if we can just tie the last bits of our herbs and make sure we're wearing the right tassels on our cloaks and put that phylactery on our head in the right way and say the right prayers, then maybe we'll get the favor of God back. And that was their way of doing things. Surely we can just try harder and make it happen. It's certainly a feeling that I'm familiar with at times. Something isn't, yeah, <laughs> thank you, Steve. You're familiar with it too, I'm sure. Something just isn't quite going. You think, oh, if I just try a bit harder. Simon mentioned that I run my own business um, along with James, who possibly is out with his kids. I can't see him here at the moment. And um, it's a joy a lot of the time. But one of the things is if something's going wrong, you just feel like, well, I've got to fix it. I've got to fix it. I'm, you know, work extra hours, do a weekend, whatever it might be, but I'll, I'll just fix it. And the temptation is always there when actually what needs to happen is we need to give stuff to God. And here, that's what the Pharisees are doing. And Jesus is saying, no, look, it's not about trying to try try harder. You can't take the new thing that I'm bringing and try to constrain it within this, you know, perfect keeping of the law as the way back to God. It's something different. It's something new. It's something better. The second parable he gives is about wine and wineskins. So just a brief explanation. This is the nicest picture of a wineskin I could find, by the way. They're made from various parts of um, sheep or pigs. So probably not pigs in Jewish days, of course. So um, some of the pictures that get you here, or some of the videos, Maria Scoyles found me a fantastic video about making wineskins. They're not always that pleasant. You've got bits of chopped up animals all over the place. But this is the end result. And you end up with an animal skin wineskin. And when they're new, they put them up to cure. And then you pour your wine in. And wine, when it's fermenting, I don't know that much about it, but some of you will. Um, When it's fermenting, it gives off gas and it kind of changes quite a lot in nature. And as a result, the wineskin needs to be able to stretch and move around and twist and expand. And that works. You can do that with a new wineskin. 
But after a while, particularly in a hot climate like it would have been in, in Israel, you know, they start to get hard. They start to get encrusted in their shape. You know, they get creases and cracks. And uh, after a while, they are just rigid. And if you pour new wine into that, it expands and it gives off gas and it finds a weak point in the leather and it bursts it open and all the wine's spilt. That's what Jesus is referring to. You can't put new wine in old wineskins because they're too rigid. And again, Jesus' message is pretty clear here. He's saying, look, you can't take this wonderful new thing that I'm bringing and fit it inside your rigid way of thinking. You have this whole set routine. You have this whole idea of how life should be, and it's not, you know, you're not prepared to change it. And so you can't cope with this new thing that I'm bringing. And he also goes on to say, you know, if once you've got to like something, you don't want something new. And he talks about, you know, once you, people have tried the old wine, they don't want the new wine because they say, oh, the old one's better. We have this with our five-year-old, Lise. Um, sometimes he won't try something new on his plate. We say, well, how, how do you know you don't like it? Am I getting any nods from parents here? Have you had that? Yeah, yeah. How do you know you don't like it? And he just says, I don't want it. You like other things that are like it, don't want it. And, you know, that's what the Pharisees are doing. You know, they, there's, no, there's no willingness to try the new thing, to see if maybe there might be something in what Jesus is saying. And there's plenty of invitation. You know, he's healing sick people. <laughs> he's speaking with so much authority that people who have been living lives far away from God come back to God and say they want to recommit their lives to God. You know, he, he is seeing massive social change. He is seeing miracles, things which have not been seen you know, he heals a man born blind and everyone goes, we've never heard of such a thing. There's a massive invitation to the Pharisees. There's plenty of opportunity for them to see, you know, this is really a work of God and they're not prepared to try it. What they really need to understand is that Jesus is unique and what he brings is new and different. Again, I just want to sort of bring that back to us in our conversations with, um, with people from outside the church as well. I remember the student worker when I was a student, a chap called Pete Gladwell, saying that he'd been talking to some friends of his about church. And they were like, oh yeah, I go to a Land Rover club and we meet up with people who, you know, like Land Rovers and, you know, we have a good fun together as well. And Pete sort of said, I, I can't believe that. That for some people, the church is just another club built around an interest. Say, so, no, we've somehow got to be different. We've got to know that we are distinctive. We don't just meet here because we like this building. Um, or because we enjoy singing together. You know, there's choirs for that. And there's probably better buildings, and it's a fantastic facility. But in terms of, you know, pretty places to go on a Sunday morning, um, it's sometimes really cold as well. You know, there's, there's better places to go. <laughs> Thankfully, not today. Um, but so we're not just a club. We're centered around the person of Jesus Christ, who is God, <laughs> and who has not only spoken to us, not only decided that he wants to know us, but has died for us to make us able to live with him. That's an amazing thing to be gathered around. That's not Land Rovers. That's not badminton. And the, you know, we need to be confident about that, actually. We're not just a club. There is you know, a fantastic community here. And you know, that's been certainly my experience over 13 years at this church, is that it feels like a family. It does feel like a close community, but that is not all. So I feel like that's a good overview of the passage and of what 
Jesus was saying to the Pharisees at the time. But I feel like there's a message in this for us, which I hope is starting to come out as well. And praying about this, I really felt like God wanted to speak to us, particularly out of this wine and wineskins parable. Because what does it mean to be the wineskin to wine? It's all about containing something for a time so that it can be poured out. And there's a call on us as we receive from Jesus to steward that for a while so that we can pour it out to people. Now that can be people within our community. You know, we do share the life of Christ with each other. But we also have something that the world desperately, desperately needs. Um, we have the life of Christ. How do we steward that? Well, I wanted to just use a bit of an illustration from a film. Does anyone know the film Stranger Than Fiction? Fantastic film. I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorites. And uh, it has a fantastic character called Harold Crick, who I'm going to use as an illustration. Um, If you could just run the video, please, Chris. ...and remarkably few words. And his wristwatch said even less. Every weekday... For 12 years, Harold would brush each of his 32 teeth 76 times. 38 times back and forth, 38 times up and down. Every weekday for 12 years, Harold would tie his tie in a single Windsor knot instead of the double, thereby saving up to 43 seconds. His wristwatch thought the single Windsor made his neck look fat but said nothing. Every weekday for 12 years, Harold would run at a rate of nearly 57 steps per block for six blocks, barely catching the 817 Kronika bus. His wristwatch would delight in the feeling of the crisp wind rushing over its face. Every weekday for 12 years, Harold would review 7.134 tax files as a senior agent for the Internal Revenue Service. Harold, 89 times 1,417. 126,113. That adds up. Only taking a 45.7 minute lunch break and a 4.3-minute coffee break, timed precisely by his wristwatch. There you go, that's Harold Crick from Stranger Than Fiction. And it's an extreme, but I love it as an illustration um, because that's his regimented life, his routine that he's devoted to. And actually there's a lot of of the Pharisee in that, isn't there? They have their routine that they're devoted to they have a set of traditions the way it has always been. That's every, every day for 12 years, the way it has always been. For the Pharisees, it's their lives, the way it has always been. And for us, it can also be a challenge. You know, how have things always been? Do we just do things as we always did? Well, how do the disciples escape that trap? The disciples of Jesus. Well, it's partly because they weren't Pharisee educated. They weren't brought up in that school of thinking. But even then, the culture they lived in still had a way that it's always been. And they escaped from being caught up just in devotion to traditions by being devoted to Christ. 
you see it coming out, you know, sort of in dribs and drabs in various stories. There's in John 11 when Jesus goes to raise Lazarus from the dead. And uh, the disciples say, but you're going back there? They, they tried to kill you only a few weeks ago. And, you know, they don't quite understand Jesus' answer. But eventually they, they say, okay, we'll go. And Thomas says, you know, yeah, let's go that we can die with him. You know, there's that devoted nature, that devotion to Jesus. Elsewhere in, in John 6, Jesus has just given some teaching that a lot of people are finding hard. And a number of disciples leave him. He turns to the 12 and says, you're not going too, are you? They say, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. There's that wholehearted devotion to following Jesus. And it comes to fruition in passages like Acts 10, where a Roman centurion, Cornelius, sends to Peter and asks him to come and preach the gospel, essentially. And Peter goes way off the reservation because he has this dream in which God basically says, you know, you can eat anything. You don't just have to eat clean food. And then he realizes that God's also speaking about the message going to the Gentiles. He invites Roman soldiers into the house he's staying in, which was a total no-no. He goes with the Roman soldiers into the Roman house, which was even more of a no-no, and preaches the message of salvation, which he knew had come to the Jews, to Gentiles. He goes way out of his comfort zone because he is more devoted to the person of Christ and what Jesus is saying to him than he is to the way it has always been. And I think that's part of God's word to us today. A little bit of church history, um, not ancient church history, but two years ago, some of you will, be, will have been here and will remember, a chap called Roy Godwin came from Faldy Brennan in Wales. Um, and there's a house of prayer there, and he came to speak here. And a lot of us were really excited. We knew that they'd been seeing some amazing stuff happening there. God had been breaking out in amazing ways, people being healed, people being set free of things that had been besetting them for years. And it had a reputation for a thin place, somewhere where it was easy to meet with God. And a lot of us were very excited about what he'd bring. And uh, he and his wife came here and spoke, and their message was really quite simple and quite humbling. And he just said, you're asleep. Wake up. Wake up. And it more or less stopped there. We felt bereft. <laughs> you know, wh where was this amazing, you know, kind of experience of God that we were hoping for? But actually that word has done us good. And over the last couple of years, we've been trying to, and I think succeeding in waking up. But the question is, what are we going to wake up to? Harold Quick, Quick, Harold Crick even, wakes up every day to brushing his teeth 76 times. And his routine work. You know, are we going to wake up to the way it's always been? Looking back at how things were. Looking back at what our experience is. What worked in the past. What was good in the past. Or are we going to devote ourselves to the person of Jesus. And what he's calling us to. Just a, a personal example here. Um, again, talking about running a business here. So, ten years ago now, more or less. James and I set up our business, and I very much felt like that was God wanting us to do that, that he wanted us to be at work in the world of work, and we got the business to a place where it was stable, uh, we started to employ people, we started to look at how can we actually be witnessing to clients in the workplace, with limited success, but you know, we were sort of exploring that, we were exploring what it meant to be a good employer, um, whether your employees are, are believers or not. And various different things. And I really felt like this was something that God was calling us into and growing us in. And for a time, it was fantastic. About 18 months ago, 
um, God spoke very clearly to me and said, it's time to start moving on. And that was a process of, of 18 months that culminated in September, starting two days a week at, um, at Oxford Church here. And, you know, still working three days a week at Integratech and will be for a good time yet. But that was a process where I had to let go of what I thought God was saying and say, well, he was saying it for that time, but there's something new. That's not been an easy process. It actually feels a little bit like um, another child <laughs> running a business. And maybe that's not right, but it does. You know, you get invested in it, you get invested in the people, the way it works. And putting that to one side has been really quite hard. Um, it's also been very hard for James, taking on the extra responsibilities and the things that I used to do. So there's been a difficulty in adapting to what God was saying, but it was really clear he was saying it. And I really only had one option. I had to follow what Jesus was saying. I want to say as well that I'm really excited about this. And while it's been difficult, it's also been fantastic. And there is a great freedom in following what Jesus says. And actually, Steve preached um, on that a number of weeks ago on the rest of God. And if you haven't heard that, pick it up online on the website because it's a fantastic preach, among other things, about finding peace in what God's calling you to. I feel like as a church, it would be um, right to mention missional communities because that's something that we've been trying to do for a while now and we're starting to get the hang of it a little bit but actually it's quite uncomfortable for some of us because it's different <laughs> from what we've done in the past so missional communities open communities that are built around a com common love of God but also with a common desire to see others drawn in to find God and that's something that we've not really done very effectively for a number of years and we're starting to get the hang of it and we're starting to see it working in some places but actually it's uncomfortable and for some of us it doesn't feel like a good fit but we do believe that God is calling us to do that as a church and there's just an encouragement there if that isn't fitting right at the moment there's a, a sort of a, a call there I think to say well but is it what God's saying to us because if so I need to adapt but I think it would be shortchanging the message to say that it's really just about structures like missional communities or even ways of thinking like missional communities. And actually, the heart message of this is it's about whole life devotion to Jesus. And many of you will know, um, and I haven't asked them for permission, but I'm going to say this anyway, so sorry, Ben. Um, one of the things that I find amazing when I sort of interact with them, they've got kids roughly our age, so I know some of the challenges involved um, but they've been called to and to work out there, and their whole lives fit around that. They can get up and leave a country in a matter of weeks because they are so convinced that that is God's call on them, that their lives are flexible around that. Now, I'm not trying to raise them up on a pedestal, but I think that's a really clear example. It's not to say, if you want to wholeheartedly follow Jesus, you need to go to... It's to say, to follow the call of Jesus somewhere radical your life needs to be flexible enough to work around that and to change and adapt to it. So I suppose I want to leave us with three questions. And in a minute, um, Simon's going to take us through how we respond to this. But the first question really is, what do we want? Do we want this new wine? The Pharisees didn't. They were happy with what they had already. I don't know about you, but I want more of God. I want more of this fresh life of God. I've been really encouraged reading some of the testimonies on our uh, website testimony blog. 
Um, if you haven't seen it, do go on the website and have a look. There's people there from our community, sometimes a bit further afield as well, who've put in testimonies of stuff that God is doing in their lives. Some of it's physical healing. That's always really tangible and great to read. But just as genuine and just as real, God setting people free from things. God providing. God helping when there's, um, you know, bereavements or whatever it might be. Fantastic to read what God's doing. Likewise, we've seen a large... For our standards, certainly, a large number of people in the last couple of years come to find faith in Christ. But actually, that's just a trickle compared to what we want to see. We want to see everybody finding the life of Christ and coming into not just this church, but all the churches. So we want more. (laughs) Do we want the new wine? And if so, are we ready for it? And I think this is where I feel challenged. Really, I was sort of praying about this message again last night and you know, sometimes you have to preach on something for God to stick his finger on something. And it's always the most inconvenient time and the most (laughs) humbling way to hear it. But, you know, I was thinking, what gets me out of bed in the morning? Well, when I'm up and about, okay, yeah, my motivation is very much, I want to see how I can please God today. But actually what gets me up out of the morning, out of bed in the morning rather, is, is normally playing a game on my phone to try and clear the fog of not having slept quite as much as I would have liked. And actually I thought, you know, I want my first thought every morning to be, God, what is it you want from me today? How is it I'm going to live for you today? And that kind of um, day-by-day dependence on him, I I want that. I've said it on tape now, so even though Caroline isn't here, I'm going to have to do it. (laughs) Um, And in that, I would like to say as well, whatever, however you respond to this today, the most productive conversation you can have afterwards is to talk about it with somebody who you're going to see regularly. Um, It's great to pray about these things with, you know, with somebody who... um, you know, might be available up at the front or something like that. But actually, you want somebody who you're going to see more than once a week who can say to you, you know what you were saying about what gets you up out of bed in the morning? Well, are you actually doing it? And that's an uncomfortable conversation, but one that is really helpful. So do make sure that if you feel God is putting his finger on something for you, that you have that conversation with somebody who will actually challenge you on it. Somebody you know well enough and that you see often enough. And I suppose the last question that comes out of that is, are we devoted to the person of Jesus? I think it's easy to be devoted to routines. It's, it's very easy to slip into that. And some of the routines are good. In fact, there's, for those of you who know the English Book of Common Prayer, there's a whole section at the front on why some traditions should be kept and others dispensed with. And what it comes down to is, is the heart there still? Is this something that is still pointing where it originally pointed? Or is this something we're doing for the sake of doing it? And so I want to throw that question out as well. Are we devoted with our whole hearts and our whole lives to the person of Jesus?